This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Dr. Zudi Jasser, welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This. Your faithful uh, podcast host with the Blaze Radio Network, bringing you a one of a kind podcast, not equaled or matched anywhere, where you find an American Muslim patriot, a reformer, who takes on those issues that challenge us day to day to breach that divide between what is the most important chasm in the world today, the chasm between radical Islam, theocratic Islamism, and the free world, the land of secular liberal democracy, universal human rights, and how do we approach each of these battlefronts and confront issues day to day that do breach those divides and can educate you and me on where we can push the buttons that will make us freer, defeat our enemies, and win this battle against jihad that cannot be won militarily. Yes, we might win some skirmishes here or there, but the bigger battle, the grand jihad that they have against us can only be won ideologically from within the House of Islam, and that's what I'm bringing you here on this podcast. A lot to talk about this week. A lot has happened. And I want to spend some time today talking to you about a few issues. One is to look at more, uh, drill down on what is being termed by the uh, Trump campaign as extreme vetting, but actually simply the right thing to do against those who may be coming to our country to invade, to be insurgents, and how do we filter and vet against them. Second is uh, the... Uh, latest on more attacks against ISIS as that, uh, by ISIS rather, as that cancer continues to spread. And last, the ever controversial issue of Hillary's right hand, faithful Huma Abedin. And yes, as much as some of us have avoided that issue, I think the way Paul Sperry presented it in the New York Post warrants a discussion especially now as uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, brings front and center who would her advisors, chiefs of staff, and others may be. It is so important for us to address what is and who is Huma Abdin. So first, I think it's important to look at what this, what do we mean when we talk about extreme vetting? And From a presidential campaign perspective, it was certainly nice to see him narrow and amend and correct his previous overstatements and misstatements regarding a Muslim ban and how not only unworkable it was, but how 
much of a disaster that'd be regarding policy from within the Muslim community and globally as we try to get our allies. But more correctly now, he's talked about in a speech he gave that we discussed last week, this extreme betting. And, and what I wanted to do with you today was to sort of lay out what would an interview look like? And I think there'd be no better friend to walk you through that than you and I to sit and interview a prospective refugee, a prospective political asylum seeker, and what would we be asking them? What would that vetting, not extreme, again, that was an ad-lib remark that uh, Trump made, that Mr. Trump made as he uh, went off script, but it's not extreme, it's normal vetting. And as Jonathan Turley wrote uh, this week, he, he talked about the fact that there's nothing unconstitutional about having ideological tests. There's nothing inappropriate about a democracy welcoming only those that would share its social contract. And there's no legal precedent to assume that those who are not allowed in because of ideological reasons somehow had their rights violated. And I'd uh, ask you to go take a look at Jonathan Turley's piece. Um, and as I debated this week uh, on uh, Fox News and, and elsewhere, I think this is central not only to our domestic policy, but to our foreign policy. But I think to my listeners today, let's look at what a interview may look like. And as I mentioned before, the principles are not that hard. And that's why I think the interview is so important is for you to see how in 15, 30 minutes, and I've talked to some unnamed former military analysts, intelligence officers, and others who've sent me notes and I've spoken to who've said, Zudi, you are right on the money. We do this all the time. When we give security clearances, when we interrogate translators and figure out if they can work with us in Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq and elsewhere where we're doing operations. We don't just say, hey, do you have a good CV? Do you pass a background check and that you've not had any criminal or terrorist activity? But they look at their ideological footprint. And that footprint includes organizations, political, religious, and otherwise that they belong to. And also an interrogation process, a questioning process that looks at making an ideological framework about where this individual sits on the political spectrum, on the theological spectrum, and most importantly on the human rights, humanitarian and universal human rights spectrum. So this cannot be overstated about the importance of clarity. And this interviewing process can only happen with Muslims leading this. And, uh, you know, all I'm going to do is pull out our Muslim Reform Movement Declaration. And instead of reading that declaration of principles that said what we as reformers who are against political Islam, who stand against these insurgencies, the jihadists, instead of just reading those principles like I've done with you in the past, I'm going to flip them into questions that we would ask a prospective asylum seeker. So, let's pretend we're sitting with Abdul. We won't give him a last name, but here he is, a refugee from my motherland of Syria, 
let's say even from Aleppo, where my grandparents, my grandparents, grandparents, and my families for generations came from. And let's say Abdul wants to come to the United States. And he's waiting in line, gets his paperwork filled, and he has passed the background checks, doesn't appear to be associated with any radical Islamist organizations. They actually did some Google vetting. Again, not done yet today, but let's just say they did Google vetting, and he passed. No associations of concern. And those associations we should be looking for would be Is he affiliated or made public statements in favor of the Taliban, in favor of ISIS, in favor of Al-Qaeda, Jubat al-Nusra, in favor of the Muslim Brotherhood? This is why the Muslim Brotherhood should be labeled a radical organization. Should it be labeled terrorist? We can have that debate certainly in Syria or Egypt. The argument's a lot stronger to make than it is in the United States that the Brotherhood, a, a political theocratic organization, is terrorist or not. But... The bottom line is, is Abdul that we're sitting with now to ask questions. If he was a member of that online, I think that would be relevant to rejecting his application. But let's talk about ideas with Abdul. And again, if you're wondering where I'm getting these questions from, they're not in the form of questions, but they're the ideas on our Muslim reform movement declaration. That's the only two pages I sit with in front of him. And I would ask him. And here's the interview. Abdul, welcome to the question vetting desk of the refugee acceptance process of the United States of America. And we're going to ask you a few questions. And through those questions, we're going to figure out whether you fit the ideological profile of somebody who we can embrace in the United States or not. I will not be able to give you a verdict today, but I will take your answers and present them to our analysts and see if it's somebody based on those answers that we can accept. And that's what we do. It's not a right to come to the United States. It's a privilege. The United States is an idea, and we hope that you would embrace that idea. So, Abdul, let me start with your perception of the United States of America as a country. Do you believe that you could embrace citizenship of that country? Yes or no or otherwise? So now we hope he'd say yes, and obviously every one of them, even the radicals, will probably say yes because they know that's the answer to that question. So are they going to be honest or not? I think as we go further in the questions, you'll be able to tell how we can make sure they're honest. Next, Abdul, do you believe, aside from the United States, let's look at Syria that you've had to leave, or Saudi Arabia or Iran, do you believe that the identity of a military, that those citizens serve in that country, should be Muslim? Or should the identity of the military be based on their country, be it Syrian, Saudi, Egyptian, Iranian, Afghani? So should the military be based purely as a Muslim military or 
based on their nationality. And then tell me why. So obviously, the Islamists believe in a Muslim military. They're borderless. They don't believe in the nation state. They believe in the sort of ephemeral global Islamic states, many that come together as one caliphate, which brings the next question. So Abdul, tell me, do you, what do you think about the caliphate? Is that something that you would hope Islamic states would form? Now, I know I'm not telling you that ISIS's caliphate is legitimate. It's probably not, and he's an evil, violent man, but do you see any form of a caliphate being something that the Muslim world should form? Muslim-majority countries. So again, here, caliphism is something everywhere from al-Baghdadi's ISIS to bin Laden's al-Qaeda, the Muslim Brotherhood with Muhammad Morsi and its founders from Hassan al-Banna on wrote about global hegemony of Islamic states through caliphism. So can he reject the caliphate? And in our Muslim reform movement declaration, we reject any need for ever forming the caliphate ever again. And on that caliphism, and back to sort of nationality, do you believe, Abdul, that the Islamic State is a concept that Muslims should support? Or do you think it makes non-Muslims have an issue that puts them in a second-class status? Would you support the concept if Muslims are a majority of an Islamic state? And do you believe, then, if it's Islamic, that its legal system should be based in Sharia or Islamic law or jurisprudence? Oh, I see. So, so Abdul, you think that Sharia is similar to Western law. Okay, well, let's let me ask you a little bit, Abdul, about Sharia. And when we come back, let's see what he thinks about Sharia and how to do more vetting. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser back with you with Reform This. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening and joining me in this journey as we confront, as I confront, as an American, first, an American that happens to be Muslim, a Muslim that happens to love my faith with a tough love that believes it needs to reform Many of the interpretations need to be updated to be commensurate, compatible with the 21st century. And as we reform, we're talking about ideas. So last segment, I ended in the middle of an interview. We were interviewing the fictitious Abdul, a 
poor refugee like many in my family that are trying to, and our families in Syria, millions that want to escape and come to the West. So what would we ask him? So Abdul, we were talking about Sharia. Do you believe that the law, whatever you call it, Sharia or secular law, do you believe, for example, that people should have the freedom or the ability to draw pictures of the Prophet Muhammad in a very mocking, condescending, oh, what could be perceived as an offensive, rude way that depicts him in a in a very inappropriate way that you as a Muslim may disagree with? And I, you're Muslim, right? Yes. Okay. So um, do you perceive that that would be inappropriate? And if you think it's inappropriate, would you believe that the state should create a law that prevents and censors certain type of offensive cartoons, offensive music, offensive poetry, literature, and writing, that the offense is not only, you know, in America we have laws for slander um, and libel, which has to be proven in civil court, but do you believe that it should be criminal to offend Islam, that Islam as a religion has rights, that Muhammad as an idea, the founder, the messenger, which Muslims believe is the messenger, should be respected by every citizen, and if not, should pay a criminal punishment? Oh, you want to think about that? Okay, sure, sure. Take some time. So you see here, the Abduls of the world, really, don't ask about blasphemy laws. Ask them about, can anybody draw anything about the about the Prophet Muhammad, no matter how rude and and offensive it may be? And then I'd ask him, Abdul, do you think a Muslim can leave Islam? And I know that you may say, well, they can leave privately. Can a Muslim leave Islam and then go on television and say why he left Islam? To stand at the corner in, in a large city and preach the gospel, preach another religion, because he believes that he has left a faith that he finds an error. Now, I ask you that. I'm Muslim, so don't don't believe that I'm saying this because I think that Islam is in any way positive or negative. It's just, do you think that that freedom should exist? So not only private apostasy, but public apostasy. Should people have the freedom to leave the faith and then talk about it and encourage others? And the reason I ask him about encourage is this is where the so-called moderate Islamists, the, you know, many Islamists that believe in the Islamic State and certain Sharia will say that, well, Corporal punishment, torture, flogging, the Hadood punishments, if you will, they'll say those are too far. But you can't allow an Islamic State to allow people to publicly apostatize because that'll rip it apart. It's like treason or sedition. Well, certainly, as long as you have an Islamic State, they're right. And this is why these ideas are all tied together. 
But many of them will bring these ideas with them, and we need to ask them. So they talk about public apostasy. If they believe that people cannot publicly reject the idea of Islam, that somehow Islam is like a human being and it has rights, then that's not compatible with American society. A society that every day has people that publicly criticize Christianity as an idea and various Christian icons and leaders, not to mention other faiths. So, Abdul, do you think public apostasy is okay? Oh, okay, thank you. Let me ask you about jihad. Now, I understand jihad. Um, there have been people that we've been interviewing with their first name, jihad. They're wonderful human beings, so it doesn't always mean war or violence, etc. But tell me, do you think there's any role for violent jihad? Yes or no? Oh. Okay, let me clarify. Do you believe that a military of Muslims can fight in a jihad? Do you believe that once a person thinks they're doing something to defend themselves, that if it's armed, that's a jihad? Oh, so you see armed jihad, violent jihad, is the litmus test. And if they believe in that, there's no apologetic that should welcome them into the United States. Oh, let me ask you, Abdul, do you think that women and men are equal? That a woman could run the household? She could be the major breadwinner? That there's an equal partnership involved there? Do you believe their human rights are of equal bodily control, bodily autonomy, ideas, equal rights to public speeches, public leadership, governmental roles, administrative roles? Do you think there's an equality there of property rights? How about votes in court? In our legal system in America, would a woman's vote in the courtroom be equal to that of a man? Or would she need two witnesses, two women witnesses to equal one in a courtroom? How about if a woman is attacked, tortured, and raped with no other witnesses? Do you believe that DNA evidence can convict a rapist? Or do you need four witnesses according to the laws in some of the Sharia courts that exist in Saudi Arabia? How about the LGBT community, the lesbian and gay community? Do you believe that they have equal rights to self-determination of their sexual identity? Or should they be punished? We see in Iran they're thrown off cliffs. We see in many Muslim-majority countries the governments don't even recognize that those human beings exist. Do you think they're human beings with equal rights? What about minorities? Do you believe any other faith identity 
has an equal right to be the president, to be judges in court, with access to political office and leadership in the community, with equal rights under the law, whether they be Jewish, Yazidi, Shia, other minority sects, Baha'i. Oh, okay, thank you. I'll let you think about what his answer may or may not have been. And lastly, do you believe that the minority rights can sometimes trump the majority? Or do you think democracy is about elections? That all, as long as 50% plus one vote on something, then, then that makes it the right thing democratically. Because I know you know you're coming to a democracy, but how do you define that democracy? And last, do you believe in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? You know, many Muslim countries signed the Cairo Declaration of Human Rights and that they refused to acknowledge the UDHR because the Cairo Declaration was based in Sharia, based in the Islamic identity of the states that signed it. What do you feel? Would you abandon the Cairo one and sign and adhere to the UDHR? So that's just a small example of some of the questions that I believe should be asked as part of the vetting process. And it's not only for refugees. I mean, this should be used in vetting anyone who would apply for security clearances. As we saw sitting behind Secretary Clinton during one of her rallies in Florida a couple of weeks ago was Omar Mateen's father, the radical savage that killed over 50 people at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. His father, the wacky Siddiqui Mateen, videos online supporting the Taliban, supporting the end of the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan and Waziristan, thinking he's running for president, thinking he is president in his fatigues, etc. So this is a guy who then claimed that he was anti-ISIS and yet had wacky conspiracy theories. The bottom line is, is forget what he would say in an interview. This guy had an online footprint that should have made him radioactive. Now he was already in the United States, so at least he should be vetted in a way that should put him on lists that would prevent him from having close access to presidential candidates that have Secret Service protection. And if he ever applied for a job, there's pictures of him with many different members of Congress online visiting Washington and being an active lobbyist. Did he pass clearances for that? And odds are, I bet you Homeland Security would tell you that, well, the countering violent extremism narrative does not vet for online Google vetting. <laughs> a term I made up. But I think it should be part of what we do. It should vet for footprints online, associations, ideas, in addition to a interview process that should find out, do they share our social values? Do they share our understanding of what it means to be free in the social contract of Americanism? Or will they come in and based on the interview that I just mocked for you uh, with a fictitious Abdul, would 
they answer the right way to those questions. And I think any of you understand what America is will know what the right answers were to those. And we'll find it not too hard to tell if somebody's lying or truly believes. Because there's so many approaches, be it about free speech, be it about women's and men's equality, be it about bodily autonomy, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, our Constitution, our Army, our military versus their military. And by the way, lastly, it's not just about Islamism. Ask them about if they have adherence to Assad's military-type dictatorship, how he defeated his enemies through torture. Was that moral? How do we counter bad speech? Through targeted assassinations or through public disagreement? Ask them about the methods of corruption of the Russian military, of the Russian autocracy. Ask them about various organizations that work with these groups, the smuggling of information, about what Snowden did, WikiLeaks, and other aspects of stolen information that can unravel our society if we allow people to come in under the, under the rubric of freedom to believe that the ends always justifies the means, be it through terrorism, be it through thievery, disloyalty to our country, or loyalty to foreign nations. So it's not just about political Islam. It is about loyalty to the United States as we grant them the privilege of coming here. When we come back on Reform This, we will continue, and this time talk about the enigma that is Humabdin. Breaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of Reform This, where we confront the most controversial, but the most relevant and germane issues to the battle for our national security, the battle against radical Islam, and against the ideology of Islamism or political Islam. And there's been no central, more central nexus to this entire conversation than the question of foreign influence, of the influence of countries, especially petro-Islamic countries like Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia is clearly, as you and I have talked before on this program, is the central cancer cell that obstructs reform and promotes a version of Islam that is just incompatible with what it is to be free, what it is to be American. And there's been a bipartisan addiction to the evil that is Saudi Wahhabism, 
to the evil that sprouts the ideologies that are insurgents when they come to the West, that are militant radicals when they go into Syria, as ISIS has. But at the end of the day, we have to find every example and hold people accountable. And one example has been the Clinton Foundation. We talked about how how much money, as the Daily Caller broke the story, and Clinton Cash and other, uh, that book Clinton Cash uh, by um, so many people that have been talking about this have continued to expose the fact that this found, and to the point, now this week, as if by some major concession or, or just obvious reality, President Bill Clinton and Hillary have said, vacillating somewhere between that the foundation would be shut down, that they would go on hiatus, and even uh, uh, President Clinton suggesting they would no longer take any foreign donations when she became president. So I'm like, oh, so they don't even have an argument anymore now. Their opinion is that it is immoral and corrupt to take money from governments that share none of our values and whose treatment of women, treatment of minorities legal underpinnings of the Sharia states are incompatible with our policies, domestic and abroad, even though we may share some common enemies, be it Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or other radical Islamic groups. But this epiphany that they seem to have had with the Clinton Foundation, Paul Sperry this week laid out in the New York Post a story that broke years ago on Humabdin. Humabdin is a known, has become a bit iconic just by virtue of her presence to the right of Hillary Clinton all the time as sort of her gopher, her assistant, her, her uh, from the time she was a young intern to persist at her side through her time as a senator, as a time uh, as a secretary of state, and now a time as a candidate, as the nominee of the Democratic Party. But years ago, the story broke about Huma Abdin's connections on the masthead of a radical Saudi magazine. Now, the story ended up not getting the attention it should have and actually was marginalized because they tried through the story's narrative to attach her to the Muslim Brotherhood, and there's no doubt that her ideologies mixed well with the Muslim Brotherhood movement. But in the United States, the Muslim Brotherhood operates covertly, not overtly. So to make the case that someone's a member of the Muslim Brotherhood is going to be very difficult because, A, it's a covert operation if it exists. B, it's hard to prove it exists. So thus, why not deal just with the ideology? And when it comes to the ideology of Huma Abdin, her ideology is unknown. We know what she did before working for the good Secretary Clinton, which was working closely with her mom and her brothers and her family operation, which was the journal the Journal of Muslim Minority Affairs, the JMMA. And this journal was based out of Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. This journal was run, edited, and led by her mother, 
and Miss Abdeen's daughter and sons were part of the operation. Her daughter, Huma, was listed as an associate editor during the time in the 90s in which Senator, then Senator Clinton, was the good senator from New York. And during that time, as Hillary was giving speeches in Beijing on the on how women's rights are human rights, that magazine with Huma Abdin's name on the masthead talked about women in a way that criticized Hillary Clinton for directly criticized Hillary Clinton for uh, the the sexual promiscuity and irresponsibility and indirectly promotion of violence against other women, that somehow women that get raped were asking for it, as Paul Sperry writes this week. And the author who wrote that was a Saudi official that was writing for the journal that Huma was an associate editor for and was an official with the Muslim World League, a known conduit and leading organization for global Salafi Islamist movements and including close connections with the Muslim Student Association, Muslim Brotherhood movements in the West. It also warned of the dangers of alternative lifestyles. The Abdeen Journal was founded and funded by the former head of the Muslim World League. They also criticized the West for pushing mothers out into the open labor market as a clear demonstration of a lack of respect for womanhood and motherhood. Now, listen, did Huma write that herself? No, she just edited it. And this is the problem with people like Huma is that, you know, some of us are out here on the front lines all the time making it clear where we stand or where we don't stand, who we stand against, who we stand with, who we stand for. Huma is behind the scenes and yet well known as by name as somebody who's very active and leading iconic in the Muslim community. And yet, we have to guess about what her beliefs are. On the one hand, superficially, she seems to be very secular. She was married to a a Jewish liberal congressman who had his own problems, and yet she stuck by him. And yet, if you look at Salafi tradition, she wouldn't even be Muslim anymore because she did not marry a Muslim man. So you could theorize that she's pretty liberal. And yet there's no response. All it would take would be her to write a piece about women's rights and the problems of Wahhabism. A piece, a speech, a talk, a interaction in some panel in which she stands for women's rights. A, a condemnation repeatedly of what the Saudis, the Qataris and others do to women to uh, the journal herself that she edited had defenses of female genital mutilation. She could have taken the years since the initial criticisms were made of Huma Abdin. She could have taken the years to begin to forge relationships with Ayan Hirsi Ali with so many other reformers against FGM and make it clear Use the Clinton Foundation that she's so uh, tied to with uh, Secretary Clinton and President Clinton. Use that to use the noceilings.org to expose the Saudis, expose the Qataris for what they're doing to women, against women, to diminish their rights, their votes, their property rights, their ability to work, their enslavement by a patriarchal society. But no. 
we're still out here two months before this presidential season and election happens and we're guessing about what Huma Abdin believes and if you question it then you're either an Islamophobe or somehow you're a conspiracy theorist or who knows what they're going to say about those of us who are questioning what Huma believes but here's a person that could be in the highest echelons of power whose mother still until 2008 and on was publishing opinions that are wacky to say the least and pretty misogynistic and 12th century to say the worst. It offends me as a Muslim that I cannot speak out against what Huma may stand for and expect a potential possible chief of staff to identify with the ideas of our Muslim reform movement, to identify with the ideas of open condemnation of violent jihad, misogyny, FGM, and all the other aspects that this journal, this part of the Muslim World League, look at all of the clerics and imams that are affiliated with the Muslim World League, that her mother's organization, which, by the way, there are pictures of the mother, Miss Abdeen, and as the New York Post then later reported as... Huma's mother problem. And for those who think, oh, you know, the sins of the mother or the sins of the father, as they say, well, in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, as much as I talk about how much love and affection I had for my father, I also had differences that I laid out clearly in my book that he and I had on certain issues. So, you know, at the end of the day, these things, she's a very public person, will be affecting public policy towards domestic national security, NSC operations, White House personnel, security clearances and vetting at the highest levels of the United States government. So it is within the realm of reason that the American people have an input and a say into understanding what the ideas of whom Abdin are and how closely related she is to Saudi Arabia and those ideas. I don't care what appearances she has of how secular or liberal she may be. But it is time that Hillary Clinton and Huma Abdi no longer simply stand behind, oh, backing out of foreign donations, but rather telling us that they stand against all of the ideologies of the Saudis and her mother's journals, Miss Abdin's mother's journals that are incompatible with America. This is the tough love that we in the Muslim community need and the reality that should be expressed and held accountable. And we'll do the same to Mr. Trump's advisors, be they connected to Russia, be they connected to any other operations that make me concerned, Trump Dubai, you know, I think that uh, uh, this is not a left-only problem. Now, Mr. Trump has had some positions that has put him at odds with those, so it becomes a little more clear that at least he's not beholden to some of that. Now, most of his positions that are strong against Islamists are domestic rather than global, so I'm still waiting to see how he stands against the global Islamist establishment. But I still think it's very important and revealing, and the story should not go away about Huma Abdin 
and holding her accountable to what a security clearance would be regarding anti-Islamism in a possible Clinton presidency. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. Joe how Bill Clinton got elected though in 92. Without Ross Perot, we don't have a Bill Clinton presidency. In 92. In 96, he would have won anyway. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, for Perot, nobody, nobody knew the guy. In 92 was... In, and I'm saying 96. Yeah. In 96, 96 I think, Clinton would have But won. nobody knew him in 92, so why would they know him better in 96? Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to our last segment this week of Reform This, your faithful Blaze Radio Network podcast host bringing you a one-of-a-kind program in which we breach that vast chasm between the Islamic theocratic world and the land of freedom in the West. And what would another horrific week in national security and global security be without more attacks by ISIS this week, this time only 20 miles from Syria? We saw an attack upon a wedding in a small Turkish town, and the suicide bomber was thought to be a small child, somewhere around 12 years old, that horrifically killed somewhere upwards of 50 people. And 12 to 14 of them were children. And the, the carnage was just beyond horrific. And one may ask, why, why is ISIS supposedly an Islamic organization killing more Muslims 20 miles from Syria, most of whom may have been Sunnis along with them. Well, again, remember, ISIS's mission is global chaos. ISIS's mission is to destabilize those countries, those nation states that are part of what they see as the establishment of states that are attacking them. So Turkey for all of its dysfunction and pro-Islamism, which ISIS refuses to see because its pro-Islamism is helping more brotherhood-type groups or even Al-Qaeda, Jubat al-Nusra, which are even moderate compared to the, the depravity and viciousness of ISIS, as if that's possible. But at the end of the day, they see Turkey as an ottoman vestige they see it as a place in which sunnis are escaping their lands while they escape Assad, but also escaping isis and the less sunnis even though sunnis are 65 70 percent in syria the less sunnis there are there the less able they're going to be able to win by sheer numbers and that's why Assad's mission last year and the year before was handing out millions of passports in order that the Sunnis depopulate in an ethnic cleansing MO. So, Turkey became that conduit of half a million, if not almost a million refugees that, for many reasons, and now if you look at Erdogan's response this week, he has blamed not only ISIS, but blamed the Gulen, 
uh, movement, uh, uh, blame the secularists, everyone except his theocratic AKP party, which has been using the, the recent so-called coup attempt in order to solidify power and further end vestiges of democracy that are part of Turkey. But again, another attack this week, more horrific eschatological endings. We saw the Dabek magazine a couple weeks ago with a cross on it that talked about the destruction of all of those who are non-Muslim believers and the subjugation of minorities. And we see in Iraq another attack by ISIS by another child, 13, 14 years old, that committed the suicide bombing. Now, the disease in Iraq is also related to a lack of nationalism, a lack of, because Iran has basically taken over Baghdad, we see many Sunnis that were secular Ba'athists just allowing ISIS to, to wreak havoc on the country, and that will continue, and especially in our absence, that will grow. And as we talk about Iran, you know, I have to say this week, Senator Kirk from Illinois hit the nail on the head when he said, President Obama, as the Wall Street Journal reported, was basically acting more like the drug dealer-in-chief as he handed over $400 million in non-American bills on pallets to Iran through delivery onto their airplanes. And, you know, listen, regardless of the excuses, I have to tell you that the thing I wanted to talk to you about is this whole story is still evolving four weeks after the story broke from the great reporting by the Wall Street Journal that laid out all of the disconnects in which the timing, the the release of the money only after the prisoners were released, and then the denials of the Obama administration to say that they weren't connected. And then, as we expressed so many thought leaders to say that, wait a minute, it doesn't matter what the Obama administration thought, what did the Iranians think? And clearly they connected the two. And then after weeks of pressure, it turns out the Obama administration did admit that it was used as leverage. When first they said the two groups didn't even talk. And now... The deal was $1.7 billion. We know what happened to $400 million, and they're saying, sorry, we are not going to tell you how the $1.3 billion was transmitted. As somebody, a friend of mine mentioned to me, it was probably transmitted in, you know, uh, 1,000 increments of uh, $9,999, wherever the math would add up. But the bottom line is, is that, is this... The cartel. This is how Middle Eastern cartels act. It horrifies me that my family escaped to come to this land of freedom and democracy and that its checks and balance were based on transparency, that our media keeps us safe by exposing these realities, and yet even as it exposes it, it turns out that even when the story was made out by the Wall Street Journal, President Obama and his cartel were lying about it repeatedly 
over and over. And nobody, it just seems to be business as usual that the president can lie about what we did in order to come to a deal to release our prisoners. And oh, forget, it doesn't matter that this happened back in January and that we still had then, oh, surprise, we had sailors taken off boats by the Iranians that then we had to get back by Secretary Kerry's negotiations. Nobody's saying, well, wait a minute. It became open season on our men and women. Forget the fact that we had what was possibly a CIA asset that just last month was was killed and publicly executed by the Khomeini, by the Khomeini regime. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, what has happened to our government? They're lying to us as as a regular MO, and yet he comes and goes to the golf course. The Syrian genocide continues. Iran fuels that. They're beginning to use the money to buy missiles from Russia. Russian cooperation is being normalized all the while this week, just a few days ago. It was again exposed that they had targeted the computers. The Russian intelligence had targeted the computers of the New York Times, reporters and others, which are is an attack, is an act of war against the United States. And yet, I'm sorry, both candidates on both parties are hands off, gloves off when it comes to the Russians. This is embarrassing. This is not the democracy I know. And I hope our fourth estate wakes up and begins to hold them accountable for the attack by the Russians on us, the acquiescence to Iran, and the bold-faced lies that came from the Obama administration as the story unfolded. That's the biggest part of the story, is the deceit from Josh Earnest and from the spokespeople that tried to massage this in a way that just made it clear that they were operating like a Middle Eastern cartel like a, a backroom deals in the tribes that come to a deal. The people don't matter. They just hand off pallets of cash in exchange for this and that promise. And Clinton's no different. We're finding out that tens of millions were were passed into the coffers of the Clinton Foundation in exchange for what's called pay-for-play, what they're calling that as she made deals with these countries, they then all of a sudden needed to provide a uh, spontaneous donation to the Clinton Foundation. Cha-ching! That's how it works. And as we expose it, it just sort of goes in one ear and out the other. Do the American people care about this? I hope they do. When people ask, where are the moderate Muslims? We are being suffocated by pallets of cash into regimes that assassinate reformers, assassinate feminists, assassinate minorities and people who want religious freedom. We need to hold our government accountable, and the media needs to begin to expose the implications of financial exchanges, dishonesty, and bold-faced lies coming from the executive branch. I can't do this work without you. We can't do this work of reform in the Muslim community without transparency at all levels. This is Zudi Jasser. 
on the Blaze Radio Network, bringing you a -a one-of-a-kind program, Reform Never Sleeps, and together we will reform this. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Take care. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.